Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas that they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Lisa Lalonde, the CEO of the Century Initiative, a Canadian-based nonprofit organization which carries out research and advocacy in favor of boosting the country's population to 100 million by 2100. The Century Initiative's bold vision has had a real influence over Canadian public policy and the accompanying debates around immigration, capital and labor, national identity, and the case for a, quote, Big Canada. I'm grateful to speak with her about the Century Initiative's vision, the pros and cons of 100 million Canadians, and how her and her team think about the question of one might call social license. Lisa, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. At a time when a lot lament a lack of ambition in Canadian policy and politics, you and the Century Initiative can hardly be accused of tinkering on the margins. For those listeners who may not be familiar, talk about the initiative and its core idea. Sure thing. Uh, Century Initiative, well, first and foremost, we're a national nonpartisan charity. But I think what's most important about our work is that, you know, we're a network of Canadians who care about the future of the country. We care about long-term thinking and planning, and we want to see more of that in the country. I think that a lot has been written about Century Initiative. There's a lot of focus on our goal of 100 million people in Canada by 2100. Uh, but I want to emphasize that you know our work is much bigger and bolder than than just the number. Uh, we we don't just care about the number. Uh, we really care about long term uh, inclusive prosperity and the hard work and care that goes into achieving that. It's one of the reasons why we actually introduced a national scorecard in 2021 that has 39 indicators of growth and prosperity. Uh, we really wanted to get a sense of where Canada you know, was tracking on those indicators of prosperity um, in a way that allows us to address the issues uh, in a way that benefits all Canadians. 100 million by 2100 is a nice round number. It lends itself to public communications. But talk about the substantive case for such a goal. What are some of the key reasons in your mind, Lisa, to aspire to such significant population growth over the century? How would it benefit Canadians and the country? So right now, we have some pretty significant demographic shifts underway in the country. You know, our population is getting older. We're aging. We have a large number of people retiring. And ultimately, we're having fewer children. So if these trends continue, there was recognition that if these trends continue, we're going to be in a very difficult place in the country. Uh, we're not going to be able to afford, you know, the the social services, the 
the we're not going to be able to continue to afford, you know, the the high quality education that we've we come to expect. Uh, and tax cuts or cuts in services will be inevitable. And so based on this recognition, uh, there was a need to really sort of talk about the demographic shift, share that information with the Canadian public, uh, talk about what that means to the country, and then why we need to focus on population growth as a means to uh, ensure our prosperity. So Population growth in many ways is tied to our quality of life in terms of the size and skill of our workforce, uh, in terms of our tax base, and also our influence on the global stage. And so with this in mind, uh, we created the bold provocation of 100 million by 2100 to really encourage discussion and debate on these issues because we felt that there wasn't enough of that in the country. You mentioned fertility rates. Given current trends, a population growth of virtually any magnitude, but particularly at the levels that would cause us to reach 100 million by 2100, will depend almost solely on immigration rather than natural population growth, which amounts to births minus deaths. What's the Century Initiative's view on pro-natal policy? Should Canadian governments be trying to boost domestic birth rates or merely target higher levels of immigration? And relatedly, Lisa, how do you think about the qualitative differences between immigration-driven growth and natural population growth? Well, first, I want to acknowledge that uh, Century Initiative fully supports natural growth. And we have long advocated since our founding for policies that support people who want bigger families. You know, at the same time, uh, you know, we have to recognize that given our you know, decreasing fertility rate, Natural growth uh, won't get us there. Won't uh, it, it? Just won't be enough. So we have to actually rely on immigration. Uh, so we're talking about the fertility rate. Um, you know, the fertility rate fell last year. Well, fell in 2022 to 1.33. I think before that it was 1.4. And then during the pandemic, uh, our fertility rate, uh, our birth rate, was at the lowest level in 100 years. Um, and so there's just got to be a recognition that although there there are policies that can be put in place to, as I said, help people who want to have bigger families, that immigration is going to have to be part of our uh, solution, uh, given the aging, uh, the aging population. You know, I think um, when it comes to, you know, the choice to have children, it's obviously deeply personal and private. Uh, but I think that, you know, if you were to ask people why they may not want to have children, I would take a bet that they're going to say money. And, you know, the fact that, you know, it's, they're really struggling. A lot of Canadians are, are really struggling right now. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why Century Initiative um, has actually and advocated for affordable, uh, for policies like affordable daycare or stronger public education, because we know that those can boost domestic fertility. So we haven't just been focused on immigration. We have been focused on these other policy areas because we want to help Canadians um, who do want to have uh, to have families, but you know, at the end of the day, when I think about the difference between you know immigration uh, driven growth and natural growth, I think that there's steps that we can take to support both that will that will ultimately benefit all Canadians, uh, and I think this is something that's really really important to keep in mind. I want to turn now to the economics of population growth as envisioned by the Century Initiative. You set out some of the upsides earlier, including a larger domestic market, higher GDP, etc. You're no doubt familiar with recent arguments 
that as immigration has rapidly increased, we've hit something of a so-called population trap in which labor is growing faster than capital. And the risk is the net effect is to declining productivity and ultimately lower living standards. Lisa, what's your reaction to the population trap thesis? What do its proponents get wrong in your mind? Well, I get that uh, many of these concerns that underpin that idea, I, I get those. Um, but I think ultimately it's deeply flawed because it it really oversimplifies the issue by only telling one side of a very, very complex policy issue. Um, you know, I think if I could take a step back, for a long time, there's been consensus on immigration and its impact on the economy. And as you said, you know, in the last little while, it, that conversation has been shifting uh, with some suggesting that, you know, uh, we're growing too big from a population perspective to, you know, it, too big for firms to actually keep up. And so then the then the question is, well, does that mean we should slow immigration down? Um, and um, and I so I want to acknowledge that there there is a real concern that businesses are not investing uh, in capital at the pace that our population is is growing. But population, our population growth goal uh, is not a goal in isolation. So it needs to be accompanied by, you know, necessary investments in um, infrastructure, you know, steps to bolster productivity, you know, welcoming new competition, uh, as well as eliminating the barriers uh, that make it, you know, too costly to invest in the country. So I actually, I actually agree with Andrew Coyne's frame. He had another piece in in the Globe recently that, you know, we're not it, we're not necessarily in a population trap. We're in an investment desert. Uh, we know from our national scorecard that I mentioned. Uh, that we track some of these economic indicators, you know, business spending on, on R&D remains like well below our peer countries. You know, we know that productivity is falling quickly uh, and we know that we haven't invested properly in infrastructure. But Century Initiative's focus is on solutions and real solutions on those complex policy issues. So, you know, solutions that look like, you know, governments can do more to address the infrastructure gaps in cities um, and in small communities um, you know, we can. They can lower the costs, development costs. They can cut red tape. Uh, they can prioritize housing in city-led developments, uh, like libraries and community centers, and also subway stations. Um, it also means, you know, working with the provinces on, you know, skilled street, skilled trades <laughs> strategies um, that improve pathways to employment. Uh, and um, we can do more to even celebrate homegrown success stories, and, and that includes procuring goods from them. Um, and we can have tax incentives uh, to businesses to conduct scientific experiments as some examples of solutions. So in our view, population growth is only one piece of the puzzle, um, but it will only actually support our goals towards prosperity if it's complemented by other investments. Um, and if I can, I want to speak to the GDP argument because there's been a lot. I, I've seen this a lot in the news that, you know, Century Initiative, you know, supposedly only cares about GDP growth, when in fact, that's not true. Uh, we we care about all the economic measures, all the ones that in particular that we've identified in our national scorecard. You know, some of the arguments against immigration, they focus on the standard sort of standard indicators like GDP per capita, GDP, public finances and wages. And a lot of those studies really take a short-term view. And then economists come on and say, oh, the short-term view on these indicators, maybe they're good, maybe they're not so good, and we should just pull back on immigration. Our view 
is that those indicators that are being used, it's a much too narrow a view. Our immigration system is not driven primarily by economic immigration, and therefore it should not be measured or evaluated by a handful of economic indicators. Uh, so, you know, so it begs a bigger question in my mind. Uh, and one that, you know, I don't often get to a, a platform to talk about. And that's and so I'm glad we're having this discussion. It begs the bigger question on, you know, how should we measure the impact of immigration on our country and on prosperity? So I have two perspectives on that. And the first one is that, you know, immigration policy decisions need to combine both economic metrics and non-economic factors, and they need to look at the medium to long term because we know that the benefits of immigration are, you know, are seen more over the medium to long term. Uh, and I think that will give us a better picture of the impact that immigration has um, on our country. Um, so an, an example of a non-economic measure could be, you know, the fact that uh, from some research we released about two years ago, we know that 40% of immigrants over the age of 15 volunteer and that immigrants donate more to charity uh, than Canadian-born citizens. So, uh, you know, and there's also the fact that second generation, so, you know, whether it's a child of a or a grandchild of immigrants uh, coming from the economic class, refugee or, uh, or, um, or family class, their outcomes tend to be stronger um, than their predecessors. So how can we kind of have a better conversation around, you know, what those measures should be? And then the second the second one is we need to do a better job in understanding how immigration impacts and intersects with other policy areas. So, you know, an example of that is what is the actual relationship that immigration has with affordable housing, for example? Um, how should Canada's immigration you know, systems, immigration levels and infrastructure investments respond to a future of climate migration? These are complex questions. They take sort of a macro level perspective, but I think they're really important to understanding how immigration is truly influencing uh, and enabling or not the country. And I think it's then up to Canadians to decide, you know, of those measures, what's important to them. Um, and how does that influence, you know, the the way they want the country to move forward? So I think, you know, if I were to close it up, I'd say we need to have a better understanding of what works in immigration uh, so that we don't end up with a misallocation of funding uh, and a reactionary short term policy uh, policy decisions. It's a great answer, Lisa. Comprehensive. And I promise we'll come to some of those points over the rest of our conversation, including <laughs> the economic ones. And then, as you say, the more textured ones. But if I may just stay on the subject of economics for slightly longer, a related argument that we've heard in recent months is that an influx of labor, particularly lower skilled labor, risks distorting the labor capital trade-off for Canadian businesses and can contribute to Canada's ongoing poor record of business investment, as you just outlined. What do you think of that argument? How should we think about the interaction between immigration policy and capital decision making? Uh, well, I think I kind of tried to touch on it in my in my first answer, but like I, I said, I I think I understand um, the concerns that underpin this idea, uh, but I think it's deeply flawed because it only provides one sort of side of the coin and oversimplifies the issue. Um, and so I think that. Um, Moving to simply uh, pull back on immigration uh, is the wrong answer. I think 
that instead we need to focus on um, the issues that are are influencing the fact that we uh, our productivity is down uh, and that uh, you know we have this investment trap as I mentioned from that Andrew Coyne uh, so eloquently spoke to. Uh, so, and I think it's worth considering the other side of that coin. So, you know, we're not the only country with these demographic challenges. We only have to look to Japan, uh, who actually did not in the beginning embrace immigration. And, you know, their, uh, their, you know, the, their head recently, uh, basically was quoted as saying that they were on the verge of not being able to function as a society. So I, I think we need to be very clear eyed about this if we if we did not bring in immigrants, we would be in a very similar situation uh, to Japan. So we're not in that situation, uh, which is good. We have other challenges that we have to address, but we need to focus on what those solutions need to be. So it, we can't just sit on our hands. We've got to actually uh, urgently take action um, in those uh, in those areas so that we can actually support um, support both people coming here and Canadian-born citizens. It's a good segue to my next question. A lot of economic analysis of immigration points to distributional effects, which is to say that there can be winners and losers. Winners may be homeowners in a particular market or employers in a tight labor market. The losers might be those who face heightened competition for housing and jobs. How do you think about these distributional effects and how should policymakers account for them? So, I mean, another way of framing that question would be, does immigration increase inequality? And my view is that you know, welcoming immigrants isn't a driver of inequality. Inequality already exists here. Uh, so making sure that immigration doesn't lead to increased inequality means a couple of things. Means uh, that we have to attract immigrants who have um, a high chance of success in our economy, uh, that we have to break down you know, explicit barriers uh, to people working in their fields, um, including workers uh, working with employers uh, to recognize international experience. Um, and then we have to have, you know, the services and infrastructure in place to support newcomers. So these actually take like very deliberate effort, but in our view, they're, they're possible and they're worthwhile. So, you know, often these are uh, these kinds of conversations and the question that you pose, they're often presented as trade-offs. Uh, and, you know, they can't, um, these trade-offs can all be boiled down to a, you know, complex set of policy challenges. But I think with the right mix of policy, uh, we can grow our population and we can do so by balancing, you know, economic interests, social, with social international, and also, I think, humanitarian interests. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Maybe you've seen in this very same podcast feed a new program called Hub Headlines. It features the best analysis and thinking of our writers each and every morning. It's delivered to you in a convenient audio format in this podcast feed. All you have to do is click and download. Instead of reading Sean Spear, Howard Englund, Ginny Roth, any one of the terrific writers contributing to the Hub each daily, you can listen to them on the go. It's convenient. It's built for people like you with busy lives. If you're multitasking, if you enjoy the Hub but can't get on a screen, check out Hub Headlines. We've got you covered with the audio version of the Hub's best commentary and analysis each day. Again, you can grab this all on the same podcast feed that you are listening to this program now. 
Simply download each morning Hub Headlines and enjoy our best analysis and insights. I want to ask next about the immigration process itself. I checked in preparation for our conversation, Lisa. There's presently an application backlog of something like 900,000 people. It strikes me as not only a, a huge opportunity cost for the country, but to your earlier point, it's also unfair and almost inhumane for those who are waiting to learn their fate. What's the Century Initiative's view about these backlogs and what should government be doing to address them? Our immigration system is under significant strain. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, the border shutdowns, the operational delays during the pandemic, um, all of those led to sort of skyrocketing backlogs and really lengthy processing times. Um, that's, you know, horrible for people who are in the process. Uh, it's also detrimental to our, you know, global competition for talent. Uh, if, you know, if people can't uh, get, you know, processed in time, they may choose to go, you know, to the U.S. or the U.K. or the Australia. Uh, so, um, you know, we have seen improvements in the last year, uh, but there's a lot more that needs to be done. Um, and to us, it's it's uh, it's not only a matter of of national reputation. Um, it's it to us, it's also poses an existential threat to our future prosperity. Another common criticism is that Ottawa's annual targets for permanent residents are set in a top-down process that leaves provinces and major cities responsible for figuring out how to settle the numbers that the federal government has effectively unilaterally chosen. Should we be reforming how the annual targets are set? Is there room for greater consultation with the relatively small number of cities like Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver, which are really on the front lines of immigration settlement? Right. I mean, we've seen some really good success with the provincial uh, programs, like the provincial nominee programs, the municipal nominee programs, um, the rural, uh, the rural pilot programs, the rural and northern immigration pilot programs. Um, you talked about Thunder Bay, uh, they're, you know, they're the rural and uh, northern immigration pilot, uh, you know, significantly benefited Thunder Bay's economy. Um, I, I think from the last numbers I saw, it created 321 jobs uh, within a year of activation, um, and it generated $11.6 million uh, in local wages and provided 229 jobs to applicants um, in the area. Uh, so, you know, those types of initiatives um, connect uh, newcomers with local communities to better target sort of what the labor gaps are in those communities. Um, in some cases, I've seen some really, really great examples, particularly in Atlantic Canada. Um, they had a program called New Conversations that uh, brought together, you know, members of the local community to better connect them to the immigration process locally. And it, and from my understanding, it led to, you know, improved their ability to not only attract, but also to retain um, those who came there. So I think like those examples are unique in the world. Um, they're being held up as unique programs and they're being modeled, from what I understand, uh, in other parts of the country and uh, other parts of the world. Um, so I think that we need to learn from those and build on them. Uh, when we talking about annual targets, I wanted to also sort of reinforce that, you know, Century Initiative has has um, advocated for, uh, you know, annual permanent residency targets uh, that that were between uh, keeping it between 1.15% and 1.25% of the population. Uh, so not unending growth. 
And what we were seeing is some of the pressure within the with that we're experiencing right now and that's being written about is really in sort of the temporary residency categories, uh, temporary foreign workers and international foreign students. Uh, we've uh, advocated and, and recommended that they be part of the, the annual uh, planning process, the multi-year annual planning process. Um, they cannot be delivered in isolation um, uh, because, you know, challenges will will surface as we're seeing now <laughs> from uh, the increase, the, the dramatic increase in the last couple of years. Yeah, I was going to ask about that next. As you say, there's been a growing public discussion about the relative balance between permanent residents and the massive expansion of, of non-permanent residents, including temporary foreign workers and international students entering the country. Let me ask a two-part question. First, what do you think explains the surge in non-permanent residents in, in recent years? And, and second, what is the Century Initiative's view on the optimal composition of Canadian immigration? Good question. So I think uh, obviously there's significant demand for labor uh, and a need for employers to connect uh, with people who uh, can work and, and sort of fill those roles. If you talk to anyone you know, family, my family, they're dairy farmers, retired dairy farmers, anyone working in agriculture, like we need, uh, there's a desperate need for workers. We also know that, uh, you know, 25% of the workforce uh, by 2033 and uh, in key industries like manufacturing and construction, uh, they're going to retire. That's, I think, almost 800,000 people. Um, and so there's a, a need, a desperate need uh, for, to con- for programs that connect uh, companies to people who can work. Um, our Century Initiative's view, though, is we really believe in permanent immigration and uh, temporary uh, temporary workers should not sort of, um, we shouldn't become too over-reliant on temporary foreign workers. Uh, we And we should create pathways for those who are temporary foreign workers to uh, to uh, to settle uh, into Canada and become citizens, permanent residents and citizens. Uh, I think that um, we've stressed the need for them, for that category to be part of the multi-year planning process, uh, and that you know efforts to at, you know at plans to bring in people need to coincide with investments uh, to support uh, you know ser- the services and infrastructure that we need to uh, to absorb uh, the people that are coming in. I think when it comes to international students, um, you know they often get lumped together with temporary residents, but it's a whole different beast. You had a really great uh, you had a really great discussion with Amanda Lang on it. I think. You know uh, the the capping of international student numbers. I think that was a reaction uh, to to the the large increase in numbers and Canadian reaction uh, to the concerns around that. To us, we think it's an opportunity for a reset to really think about. Okay, let's plan. Let's take a long look at the issue and ensure that we have the right plan to you know attract students that can fill jobs that we need tomorrow, that where there are gaps, whether it's STEM or the green economy or trades. Uh, and at the same time, you know, we know that there's been a gradual defunding of, of uh, universities and colleges, and uh, these institutions have relied on international students for funding. So there's consequence to pulling back, uh, and we need to understand what those consequences are and plan for those properly. So the point is, we need to plan, <laughs> and we need a really good plan, and we need a long-term plan so that it's managed well. Well said. Final question on the process itself before we move to a final set of questions uh, on some of the non-economic externalities that you mentioned earlier. One criticism of rising immigration, particularly in the permanent residence stream, 
is that it may involve lowering the threshold for successful applicants under Canada's point system. Does that worry you at all, Lisa? Is there a risk that by increasing the total number, we're compromising on the characteristics that tend to be associated with successful settlement and integration? I mean, I have a different view on it. I, I've seen some economists uh, more recently talk about how the immigration system is broken and that uh, and that we, you know, we're we're taking away the value that we've had and that and that we've been proud of in terms of how we've structured the immigration system. And we have some amazing programs that you know target economic immigrants and some that have had a great degree of success. And new programs are coming up. Um, are being generated based on sort of consultation with employers um, and with the provinces um, in communities. And so um, our point system continues to be the envy of the world. Uh, I think I think what they're what I, they're getting at maybe is this uh, the focus on temporary workers. Um, and so I just go back to what I said earlier, which is, you know, there we have a gap and we have a need that needs to be filled. Um, but it can't just be done in isolation. There needs to be sort of thoughtful thinking and planning around, you know, uh, around, you know, how we're actually doing that so that it's done well. Um, and that we're focused on encouraging those who are here who do want to stay and are contributing meaningfully that they can actually transition to permanent residency. I want to ask you about the difficult yet important topic of culture and identity. Over the past few months, we've seen Canadian cities marked by pretty shocking protests and demonstrations in response to Hamas's terrorist attacks against Israel. As the foreign-born share of the national population grows, how do we balance the principle of pluralism with a clear sense of Canadian identity and values? So I want to start by saying that, you know, Canadian support for immigration has been foundational to our country's success. And, you know, the research has shown that that support for immigration um, has, has is shifting a little bit. But really, crucially, it's, it's not tied to sort of an increase in anti-Semitism or anti-immigrant sentiment. They're actually tied to practical concerns around the country's ability to absorb uh, immigrants coming in and so and specifically related to housing at least that's the the research that that we um, that we've been funding through the Enveronics Institute uh, these are practical concerns and uh, that they require really decisive um, and, and practical action to address I think that if we don't address them I think that we're going to see you know a greater shift in the wrong direction uh, on immigration which is deeply concerning to Century initiative. I think, you know, to your point around, um, you know, what's been happening in the last year and some of the protests that we've seen, I think, um, you know, we didn't, Canada didn't get to where we are today without, without, um, without sort of being very tolerant and open. Um, and, you know, we won't get really far um, in terms of, you know, cohesion or prosperity if we don't go down the path of, of, really supporting and enabling pluralism in the country. Uh, So I think civic leaders in particular need to stand firm on Canadian ideals, Uh, not just for newcomers, but for people from all walks of life. And I think that's that's incredibly important from our perspective. We should recognize and lean in to Canadian values um, that have contributed to our success, and pluralism is one of them. I think that from a you know, from a programmatic perspective, I think some of that could be supported through those 
those provincial nominee programs, those rural pilots, like improving settlement supports and services, connecting people from the communities to the people who are coming in uh, to the communities so that uh, we can have, um, we can connect uh, people more uh, to sort of the values and the the, the culture of those communities. Um, I think that uh, local involvement will be really crucial to dealing with that. But as I said, um, a, a bigger piece of that, since I think I know what you're actually asking, is um, I think civic leaders have to be really, really firm on standing uh, up for those ideals and what that means. And then policymakers have to back it up by ensuring that we have the right supports in place to continue to have amazing integration programs in the country. A related concern, Lisa, is the risk that Canada becomes a locus for diaspora conflicts to play out. What, if any, changes would you make to the practice of pluralism to protect against the sense that Canada becomes, in the words of British Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, a hotel society rather than a home society? I think an important thing to remember in this is that um, as a country, we're not alone. Like we're not the only ones grappling with this. Um, and we're seeing this play out in other parts of, you know, multicultural countries. Um, I think at home, you know, we have seen the rise of of hatred and anti-sentiment, uh, anti-Semitism, sorry. Um, and that is truly heartbreaking to me. Um, the, uh, I think... This the current sort of climate, the the rise in anti-Semitism, um, I think does mean that we have to take a really hard uh, look at you know how to better integrate uh, and welcome new newcomers. And keep in mind, we are like we have one of the best integration systems in the world. Like, there's definitely lots of room for improvement, but we we are recognized as having one of the the better uh, systems in the world. And so, you know. What can we do to uh, to improve and strengthen that? I think um, some of that involves, um, and I think you've written about this. Uh, it's you know connecting newcomers and educating newcomers as they're coming in on our on Canadian commitments to reconciliation. I think that's really important. Um, I think you know some of the the new conversations initiative I mentioned in New Brunswick, uh, you know, created connections between local community members and the people coming in, and and it's much harder. Uh, to have tension, uh, you know, between groups when you actually are, you know, create opportunities for them to bond, to to work together, to work together towards a shared goal of strengthening local communities. Um, I think uh, it's about, and it's about how we communicate uh, Canadian values of tolerance. Um, so I think that there's a programmatic component, but there's also a values-based component with, you know, like I said, having strong civic leaders, you know, stand up for those values um, and back it up through strong policy and then financial investment. Um, stifling immigration, though, from our perspective, is is not the answer. It's just going to hurt us in the long run. Final question. One of the possible challenges for the Century Initiative is that it can be difficult to conceptualize what it means to have a population of 100 million people. Lisa, paint a picture for our listeners of what it would look like in 2021 if the Century Initiative's vision of 100 million Canadians ultimately took shape? Well, to paint the picture for those listening, what we envision for a country for generations that we will not know and we will never see is a country that could, that has the best in class education system, that has an amazing healthcare system, that has an economy uh, that is strong, that we're influential on the world stage, and we have a strong and free democratic society. 
to get there, it's going to be, it's going to take hard work. And it's going to force us to actually talk about and think about really, really complex policy issues. The answer in the short term is not a Band-Aid solution based on fear to pull back on immigration, but rather look at how immigration, natural growth, infrastructure investment, economic management, investments in education, and children and families all work together to get us to a strong and prosperous Canada. That's a great answer in what has been a highly interesting conversation. Lisa Lalonde, the CEO of the Century Initiative, thank you for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths. The host of today's program was Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky-Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>